Now, last week, uh, we considered the preacher's critique of the world's vision of success. And the world's vision of success is about more. It's about more money. It's about more status. It's about more options. It's about increase, and it's about more. The power to attain. That's the world's vision of success. And the preacher, who is the author of Ecclesiastes, the preacher critiques that vision of success. And he says, much better, much better than the power to attain is the power to enjoy. And so he commends contentment and simply seeing what God has given you and intentionally enjoying those things and being thankful for those things and to cultivate a posture of gratitude. Now, the preacher is constantly says we should enjoy life, enjoy food, enjoy your family, enjoy your work. But the preacher is not and never suggests a frivolous life or a trivial life. And that's what he's going to critique today, the frivolous life. So if you turn with me, Ecclesiastes chapter 7, read with me verses 1 through 6. A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of birth. It is better to go into the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It is better for a man to hear rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of fools. This is also vanity. Now, as you can tell these past few weeks, the preacher does not like small talk. <laughs> he's, not into, he's not into trite conversation. He's asking the big questions of life, questions that philosophers ask. Um, so today, he is talking about the big somewhat abstract and certainly existential question of how should I arrange my life? How should we arrange our lives? The answer he gives is you should arrange your lives in harmony with the way things work. You should arrange your life to correspond to the way the universe actually is the way God created it to be. Of what he's talking about is wisdom. How to live according to the ways God created things to work. That's what wisdom is. That's one definition of wisdom. And a wise man will be able to see how reality is and then set his mind and his choices in a way that corresponds to that order and that produces fruit in his life. So a good, a wise farmer was, will know when to plant crops. He'll know 
how to care for it. He'll know when to harvest it because he's seen how vegetation actually works, how it grows. And he's arranged his vocation around caring for it. Um, Nidia has been baking bread, which is excellent, sourdough bread, lately. And she gets exact measurements. She has a, a little measuring thing she puts on there, so she gets exact measurements of, of the water and the, the dough. Everything needs to be very, very precise when you bake. So a wise baker is going to know how, th how the dough interacts with the, the yeast and the water to, to grow into a loaf. I watched a video yesterday or two days ago of how a farmer can adequately shoot a pig with one shot to take it down. And he was, he was giving very precise directions on this. He was saying what you want to do is wait until they're drinking so their head is steady, they're constantly moving. And he would say, look at the eyes. You want to go two, three inches above the eyes. Maybe this is gross for some of you. I get that. But two, three inches above the eyes. And you want to make sure that you're, you're, you're perpendicular. This is perpendicular, right? You're perpendicular. You want, to be, you want to go right on. You don't want to be up at an angle. You don't want to come down. You just want to be perpendicular with his head. And so it was a very interesting video. If I ever have pigs, I might employ that. But he was a wise uh, farmer because he knew how to take a pig down with one shot. So all that to say, wisdom is the ability to see and understand the way things work and then arrange your life and make choices according to the order of things. Um, so the preacher, that being said, is commending a life and for us to live in a way that works along the grain of reality. That's what he's commending today. Live life according to the way God designed things to be. And that will lead to the achievement of righteous goals. So he's talking about wisdom. And, and unlike other ways of ordering one's life, wisdom primarily submits itself to the way the universe is, the way God created it to be. That's wisdom. And so the preacher's words here are going to help clarify for us today how we as Christians can live fully in a way that corresponds with reality and flourish because of it. Now, Ecclesiastes is, is a book that defies neat and tight arrangement. So it's very difficult to give a, an adequate, detailed outline of Ecclesiastes. But there are three big ideas in this chapter. Number one, he critiques the unexamined life. Number two, he commends the wise life. And then number three, he laments ultimately because of the inscrutability of final wisdom or ultimate wisdom. So let's look at that first theme, the critique of the unexamined life. Um, the preacher would say the unexamined life is not worth living. The unexamined life, the frivolous, trivial life that is so common in the world today, 
does not seek to bring itself into cooperation with the divine order. Rather, its frivolous attitude towards life, which sees everything as trivial and runs to fun and seeks to avoid displeasure at all costs and seeks to flood the body with sensation and drown out its own thoughts with laughter. When it comes right down to it, that kind of life is not a life that seeks to correspond with reality, but it seeks to drown out reality. And that's what the preacher is critiquing in chapter 7. He is commending, rather, a life centered on reality. Verse 1, a good name is better than a precious ointment. So a life that leads to a good reputation, he's saying, is far superior than to pamper yourself and, and gear your life towards beauty. So he's saying beauty of the face is far less valuable than beauty of character. What will be said at our funerals? Her face was very pretty. It was always glowing. He was a very handsome man. No, they talk about your character, first and foremost. And we as, as Christians, this side of the cross, we can certainly agree. Elders are to be above reproach and well thought of by outsiders. Young women, we're told that charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but... A woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Wives and mothers are told to cultivate the inner person of the heart. Older widows in 1 Timothy 5, they were said to have a reputation for good works. All of these have to do with the character of the person the righteousness, the virtue, the spirituality of the person. And the preacher says a good reputation is better than beauty. Next, he says a funeral is better than a party. It's better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For the end, this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. There is nothing that brings you face to face with your own mortality than staring into the casket of a person who two months ago you were having a conversation with. That, that will wake you up pretty quick. That person was speaking to me and transferring thoughts to me two months ago. So that's what he means by the living lay it to heart. You begin to come to grips with your own mortality when you go to a funeral. And I think this is obvious and we've all experienced it before. But he's, he is, the point he's making is the funeral is very valuable for life because it forces you to not only realize and remember that you are mortal and you will die, but it therefore requires you or encourages you to prioritize your life. 
in a way that you would be happy that you did when you were on your deathbed. But merely going to party all the time, avoiding displeasure all the time, doesn't actually do anything for you after it's done. He says, sadness and mourning is better than triviality. Verse 3, sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of the face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. See, many people seek to avoid displeasure, as I've been saying. But very often, displeasure is the path to growth for us. Like, who enjoys running? No one enjoys running the first time they run. It's a horrible thing. You feel your, your lungs expanding. You can taste the blood in your lungs. You, it's tiring. It's, it, your, your body's achy and tire, tired. But as you continue to run and push through the displeasure, you will notice your heart and lungs getting stronger. You will notice weight beginning to drop off of you. You will be, notice your muscles begin to tighten. And over time, your energy increases and your mood increases. And running becomes easier. All because you push through the, the displeasure. So what he's saying, sadness is better than laughter, it's, it's very often the displeasurable thing that leads to increase. Um, And that's why it's better to hear, verse 5, rebuke than to have a fool sing to you. A friend who cares enough to rebuke you is better than a friend who makes light of everything. The Proverbs say, faithful are the wounds of a friend. So maybe a rebuke will wound the spirit, but it's a faithful friend who would do that for you and press through that awkwardness to wound a friend. Verse 6 illustrates this point. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is laughter of the fools. This is also vanity. If you ever tried to start a fire before and you, and you grabbed a bunch of um, thorn, uh, thorn bushes, you'll notice that when you put it in the fire, it makes a lot of noise. It makes a lot of crackling, um, and maybe it will like produce a quick flame. So it makes a lot of sound. It produces a very quick and bright flame, but it produces ultimately very little heat. And that's what Koheleth is saying. That's what the preacher is saying. It doesn't actually ultimately give you anything worthwhile. It just produces a lot of noise and a quick flame, but it doesn't produce heat. And that's what people who constantly run to levity and lightness and don't consider ultimate matters in life are like. They're, they make a lot of sound, they produce uh, a lot of flame, but very little heat. So in all of this, Koheleth is, is 
critiquing the unexamined life. The man who seeks to avoid displeasure and therefore rarely invites reproof in his life attempts at all costs to avoid contemplating ultimate matters. That's what his life is about. So he doesn't consider life, death, and therefore he does not grow in his inner man or his reputation. He doesn't gain a good reputation. He doesn't accept rebuke and use it. He doesn't redeem the time. That's a frivolous life. So certainly we ought to enjoy life. The preacher said that time and time again. Um, but he's not critiquing enjoying life. He's critiquing, and I want to punch this point, he's critiquing escapism, frivolity, triviality. That's what he's critiquing. The man who's only working for the weekend. He's critiquing that. So, brothers and sisters, it's just a part of reality that if you do hard things now, you'll reap the fruit of it later. Do the hard thing now. Be, and also, too, on that, as a congregation, let's be a people who can give and receive godly criticism. That's, that's awkward, and I don't like doing that, and I don't enjoy being criticized either, but we should be a people who accept it and receive it as God's tool in our lives to grow us. And perhaps he'll use one of you to sharpen me, and maybe he'll use me to sharpen one of you. Iron sharpens iron, right? So, let's be a church who can, who can listen to rebuke, who does, does not always want to run to laughter at the expense of Christ-likeness. Let's build one another up in righteous and holy ways, and sometimes that means doing the hard thing or having a hard conversation. So, the preacher says un the unexamined life is the frivolous life that doesn't actually produce anything. Instead of the frivolous life, he commends the wise life. Verse 7. Um, in verse 7, in the next few verses, he talks about hindrances of wisdom. Oppression is one of them. Um, and um, taking a bribe, somebody who's corrupt, in other words, is the kind of unwise posture of the frivolous person. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart. A hind another hindrance to wisdom is impatience. Better is the end of the thing than the beginning, and we like to see that. Nitty and I are thinking about building a house, maybe, if, if we can, someday. Who knows? We're thinking about that. But uh, I would love to have the house up now and not go through the, the pain of getting the permits and, and building it and doing all of that. So, yes, better is the end of the thing than the beginning. But it is also true, the preacher says, that the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. 
who just runs to, to things and gets it done, saying, I can do this. Be not quick, verse 9, in your spirit to become angry. Anger lodges in the heart of fools. Anger is opposed to wisdom. Doesn't think with a cool head, and it just creates more anger. Another hindrance is nostalgia, he says. Say not, verse 10, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Why is that? Because nostalgia only creates longing for what's gone, and it doesn't produce anything good in the future, right? Why were the days better? Why? This is when the people were better then, the, the situations were better then. Well, that's gone. How can you improve now? It doesn't, it doesn't do anything for you. Wisdom is how to act and build for the future. Verse 11, wisdom is good with an inheritance. The Hebrew could also mean wisdom is as good as an inheritance. An advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. And the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. So he is commending wisdom. It is valuable. He's talking to the frivolous man who seeks to avoid displeasure at all costs and gears his life only to enjoy and never to build himself. He says wisdom is very valuable. It's as good as an inheritance because it has just as much, if not more, potential to protect and preserve and build life. So wisdom is valuable, and we see throughout Scripture that God wants us to have wisdom and to achieve righteous goals in life by operating with wisdom. Proverbs says, the fruit of wisdom is better than gold. And we know that wisdom begins with the fear of the Lord. That means acknowledging that there is a God in heaven, submitting to his plans and his order and trusting him as you move forward. And it continues in ordering your life in agreement with the way God has designed things. We've been studying biblical manhood and womanhood in, uh, in our Wednesday night home group. And I love this quote from John Piper, who is commenting on how personhood, specifically masculine personhood and feminine personhood, has been blurred in our culture today. And there's confusion about it. And while the culture hails this as a great achievement, it's actually led to disaster, objectively. He writes, This depreciation of male and female personhood is a great loss. Now, why is this? Because God created them male and female, right? That's his design. So the path to flourishing is to submit your life in a way that corresponds to that design. That's the path to flourishing, and that's the essence of wisdom. 
So he says, it is taking a tremendous toll on generations of young men and women who do not know what it means to be a man or a woman. Confusion over the meaning of sexual personhood today is an epidemic. The consequence of this confusion is not free and happy harmony among gender-free persons relating on the basis of abstract competencies. No, the consequence rather is more divorce, more homosexuality, more sexual abuse, more promiscuity, more social awkwardness, and more emotional distress and suicide with co that comes from the loss of a God-given identity. See, the, the blurring of, per, of personhood and this androgynous impulse in our culture today is a, an objective denial of God's reality. Not just in, in, in sexual preference, but in the blurring of maleness and femaleness. Right? That men should be men and women should be women. And that's the way for both genders to flourish. That's the way God designed it. And if, we, if men act like men and we're strong, it'll strengthen our inner man, inner being. And if women are, submit to a godly man and bring cultivate life like we talked about on Wednesday, and they seek a peaceful and a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God, that's the path to flourishing. So we talk about complementarianism. That's good news. It's good news. We're not, we're not um, winding you tightly in a way that restricts you. We're pointing to paths of flourishing for male and female in marriage. God created us male and female. And the path to our flourishing is achieved when we fully embrace and live in ways that correspond to our maleness and femaleness. All right. Now, I know you've heard me talk about that on Wednesdays, so that's just an illustration of wisdom. Wisdom is what directs us to live in harmony with the way God created the universe. And that leads to flourishing. And the preacher gives some more wise sayings in chapter 7, kind of like very compressed proverbs. And what I would like to focus on, though, now is after he critiques the frivolous life. We just talked about him commending the wise life. Just like the preacher, a conflicted existentialist, and maybe some Christians even, they, he laments that ultimate wisdom, the clear and perfect way to live in harmony with the way that God has actually set things up, is elusive, he says. It's inscrutable, and we can't find it out. And he laments this fact. Verse 13. Consider the work of God. 
Who can make straight what he has made crooked? Figuratively, you can't clarify or put in perfect order what God has made inscrutable. And so he says, therefore, in the day, verse 14, of prosperity, be joyful. Be glad that God has given you prosperity. And then in the day of adversity, consider that God has made that day too, he says. They both come from the hand of God. And this is, what he, this is how he concludes. So God's made the day a joyful day for you. He's made it a day of adversity for you. And this is where we stand. So that man cannot find out anything that will be after him. We can't know. There is a cloud of unknowing how to live according to God's design. It's a mist. It's elusive. It's a vapor, he says. God's ways are inscrutable. And this, this he illustrates by the fact that they wicked sometimes prosper. So he not only laments the fact that God's ways are inscrutable, he tries to prove the fact, verse 15. In my vain life I have seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. Unbelievable. Why is that? If wisdom is the way to live that submits to God's order and leads to flourishing, why is it that people who don't do that prosper, he says? God's ways are inscrutable, is his conclusion beyond finding out. What I've just talked about is what many um, atheists and non-Christians have referred to as the problem of evil. That's the existence of evil and the prosperity of wicked and the existence of suffering. If God is good, that's a problem, they say. Now, the biblical answer to that, oh, oh, would I love to give you a lecture on the problem of evil and morally sufficient reason and talk about Alvin Plant and go with you. But I won't do that. I'll just give a compressed answer. Biblically, God has reasons for allowing suffering. And he has reasons for allowing evil, which we could not possibly discern from our limited perspective. That's the biblical answer. I know that's not ultimately satisfying to you, but that's the answer. Some examples. What good could come from the youngest boy being sold into slavery by angry and bloodthirsty brothers? What good could come from that? that would, that's just inscrutable to see how anything beneficial could happen to that family or especially that boy. But we have a story in scripture about that very thing happening and it protecting God's covenant people. 
from famine and extinction. So God may allow evil and suffering in order to bring about a greater good that we cannot perceive. Here's another one. What good could come? Say God came down to earth embodied in flesh. What good could come if men crucified him? <laughs> What's the benefit of that? That would be completely inscrutable and ridiculous to the Jewish mind. Yet, God ordained it from the beginning of time to bring about his perfect plan so that Christ would die as a substitute for his people and reconcile men to God. But as it was happening, you could not discern that, right? That's why the people on the road to Emmaus said, after his crucifixion, we had hoped that he would have been the, the restorer of Israel. Or how about this, Paul? What good, what good could come about from God allowing a messenger of Satan in your life? What good could come from that? That you would be haunted by a demon. Well, it seems the morally sufficient reason was a soul-making one. To keep Paul from becoming conceited, Paul says. And to continue him being a useful apostle. To spread the gospel, gospel through the, almost the whole known world. That's why. So, philosophically speaking, um, if God has a reason for allowing evil... There is no reason to believe that we would be able to perceive that reason, right? I've talked about this before. If there was an elephant in this room, would we see it? Obviously. Now, what if there was one of the smallest flies I understand is a noceum, right, Todd? We've talked about this before. I've given you this, this thought before, but a noceum is a very small fly, has a bite that's very strong, but they're called noceums because they're so small that you can't see them. And so, if there was a noceum in this room, do you think you would be able to perceive it? Maybe, if it was right near you, but probably not. The philosophical question is, why think God's reason for allowing evil is like an elephant and not like a noceum. Well, I think that. In fact, I think it's more like the noceum because we have examples in Scripture where awful things happen that turn out for good according to God's design, and you could not perceive it as it was happening. All right. The secret things belong to the Lord, God says in Deuteronomy. But the things that are revealed to us have been revealed so that we might trust and obey the Lord. And so this is why Augustine, the, um, 
the theologian in the 4th and 5th century says, believe that you may understand. Believe that you may understand. Faith is a posture that leads you into greater understanding of the way the universe works. So, even though Kohelda sees great evil, that does not mean that God doesn't have a purpose for allowing the wicked to prosper. Nevertheless, nevertheless, Kohela, the preacher, is very frustrated about this. And I'm sure you've experienced similar frustrations in life too. And so ultimately, verse 23, he says, All this I have tested by wisdom. I said, I will be wise. But it was far from me. That which has been is far off, deep, very deep. Who can find out? The preacher is on a quest for self-understanding and mastery of the world and cannot find it. Oh, sure, he's picked up bits of wisdom here and there, and he does believe a wise life is more productive than a frivolous life. But ultimately, when it comes right down to it, he cannot gain mastery of the world. He can't determine the fundamental order of creation. He can't perceive that substructure which stands under creation and gives it coherence. And therefore, he cannot act in ultimate and perfect harmony with the way God created things to be. That's frustration. He said, I will be wise, but it is far from me. Derek Kidner, who is a commentator on Ecclesiastes, says this could be the lament of a philosopher. He has looked for answers to the question, what is life about? But wisdom has not given him a reply. Now, that's, that's the preacher's frustration. As Christians, you need not have this frustration. For God has actually revealed that perfect substructure of creation. That which gives coherence to order, that which animates life. 1 Corinthians 1, 23 and 24. Jews demand signs. Jews want miracles. Greeks seek wisdom. Greeks want philosophy. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly foolishness to Gentiles, but those of us who are called brothers and sisters, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, get this, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Christ, the wisdom of God. Now we know Christ, the power of God, because Christ is the way that God the Father exerted himself in this world to bring about reconciliation. 
but Christ the wisdom of God. First, I believe that refers to the plan of redemption. It's the mystery. How would God reconcile a people? Why it would be by uniting people who trust in him to himself through faith. Sharing. It would be the second of the person, second person of the Trinity coming down and dying the death we should have died and sharing with us the life that he lives. That's a union with Christ. That's why Paul can say, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Salvation, ultimately, the big picture, the essence and core of salvation is that Christ's life has been imparted to you. Christ is the wisdom of God. And if Christ is the wisdom of God, that also means, I was just talking to Ryan before I was, got up here to preach, that also means that we should look to Christ and his teachings and way of life more carefully. You have to know, you have to learn where to live from somewhere, right? Where are you going to learn how to live? Where should we learn how to think and act and be in the world that God has placed us in? Christ, the wisdom of God. Second, for, uh, Colossians 2.3 says that in Christ is hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. See, we will gladly accept Christ as Savior, but what about wise teacher? We never think about God like that. Dallas Willard, who is a, a, one of my favorite philosophers, said, you ever think about Jesus as, a very, as the smartest person who ever lived? Why would we not think about him that way? We always think of him as Savior, but what about the wise teacher? For that is what he is as well to us. He's not just our Savior. He tells us how to live in the world that God has created us to be in. So discipleship is learning from Christ how to live in the world. He is the wisdom of God. So do you want to know how to live in cooperation with the way God has designed things? Christ. Christ. Today there are many voices and people, there's something about men, I would say especially men, but women as well. We want a sage in our life. Men want someone to follow. And so there, there are voices out there today that sometimes give some wisdom but are not the ultimate impartation of divine wisdom to the world. Many men listen to Joe Rogan and Jordan Peterson um, to find out how to navigate life. But ultimately, a Christian... Oh, if we, if we had the Sermon on the Mount memorized and in our hearts and minds 
and we woke up in the morning not being anxious for anything. And it was in us and took hold of our hearts and minds. And if we didn't even feel the pressure to pay, repay evil for evil, or we didn't even, weren't even tempted because this teaching has gripped us so thoroughly in heart and mind and strength to know, to allow our right hand to know what our left hand is doing when we do a good thing. I believe we would grow in exponential ways. Do you want to know what discipleship is? Discipleship in Christ. We can summarize it with the cross. What is the cross? Again, this is another, I think this is another Willardian phrase. The cross symbolizes the abandonment to God that leads to redemption. Now, that was certainly true of Christ. He gave his life as a sacrifice. He said, into your hands I commit my spirit. What does that look like in your life? The abandonment to God. How do you take up your cross and follow Christ? This, this goes for all of life. In what ways am I abandoned to God that leads to his fullest redemption in my heart, soul, mind, and strength? And in the complex of my personality and my family and my church? Christ is the wisdom of God. He is Savior, and so you trust Him for salvation. He is Lord, so you obey Him. But He is also the wisdom of God. And so you look to Him for wisdom in life. How to live in cooperation with the God, with the way God has designed things. So, as I've said many times before, the preacher, we know much more than him on this side of the cross. Yes, he has, a, he has much philosophy and philosophical ideas that is, are shared with philosophers since time began and even to this day. He is a conflicted existentialist. And we can certainly resonate with a lot of his ideas, but we have been given something he had not been given. And that is... Christ, the power and wisdom of God, the lagos, that thing which binds reality. Paul says, in him all things consist. That's an amazing statement. So, today I want to encourage you to not lament because we don't know how to live and scrape every idea into the into the into the holding bin of our lives so that we can, we can live according to these detached pieces of wisdom and ideas. Look to Christ. Absorb his teachings. Memorize his word. And bring yourself into cooperation with the way Christ lived. And that is the path to growth and discipleship. Let's close in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we come before you and we do thank you for Jesus Christ that we, can, we don't need to lament and wonder where we are, 
how to understand ourselves and how to live. You've given us Christ Jesus. Lord, I ask that this congregation would take Christ into us, his words, his manner of life, as we fully trust in him for salvation and we look to the cross and we abandon ourselves to you. And we trust, Lord, that that will bring us where you want us to be. Be glorified, Lord. If there's anything I said that is not of you today, may it fall to the ground. Those things that are true and right and good, I ask that they would pierce the heart of your people. In Jesus' name, amen.